Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I know you want to talk about D&D before we get to the real subject today. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, I, I don't know. I, 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 I was thinking about doing it last, but we can go ahead and talk about it up front. Um, yeah, well, in Dungeons & Dragons... Uh, you have all these various demon lords, uh-huh. and uh, they they rule over various uh, sort of portions of the of of the fiend population mm-hmm. in the game. And there are two demon lords in particular that I was thinking about in regards to today's episode, uh, and that that would be uh, Zugdmoy and Jubilix. So Zugdmoy is the uh, the, the demon lord of fungi, the queen of fungi, um, the master of decay. And then uh, opposing her, um, ever at odds with her, is Jubilix, the faceless lord, which is a god of oozes and slimes and blobs, <laughs> you know, all the, the oozing nasty creatures of Dungeons and & Dragons. And, yeah, they oppose each other. They're at constant war with each other. And in some uh, uh, campaigns, like their forces and even their, their you know, embodied forms do battle with one another. And it, it actually ties in a bit with the su- subject we're talking about today of uh, penicillin. Oh, okay. So penicillin, the fungus that fights, I don't know, would you call diseases slimes? Or, well, I feel like Jubilix being the demon lord of oozes and slimes kind of makes it the, the demon lord of, of microbiology as well mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, microbes and, uh, and uh, microbial illnesses. So... Okay, well, so today we're going to be talking about penicillin, I guess maybe one of the, the great real weapons of Zogtomoy. Yes. Uh, but this this came up, I think, because we'd been talking about fungus on our other podcast, on Stuff to Blow Your Mind, where we just finished recording a five-part series on psychedelics. Yeah, yeah, looking at uh, fungal psychedelics and ongoing research into how these substances could enhance our mental well-being and help in the treatment of psychological issues. And one of our big take-homes was that these fungi could help save lives and improve the quality of human life. But it would not be the first or only fungi to do so. Because we can certainly look to various interactions between human health and different fungi species and their use in traditional medicine. We can uh, point to various products, including uh, you know products of fermentation, for instance, including alcohol. Uh-huh. But there's an even better example uh, of better living through fungi, and that's penicillin. Right. So today we're going to briefly explore the invention of penicillin, which is often cited as uh, the first true antibiotic technology. Of course, antibiotics are medications that treat infections by killing, injuring, or slowing the growth of bacteria in the body. And antibiotics are a class of what you would generally call antimicrobial drugs, medicines that kill microbes that present a threat to the body. Of course, an- antibiotics generally fight bacterial infections, whereas you could have others like antifungals that fight fungal infections or antivirals that fight viral infections. Now, antimicrobials and antibiotics are a gigantic subject area that we're, of course, not going to be able to get into every nook and cranny of the subject, but we hope we could have a, an interesting introductory uh, introductory discussion, maybe come back to antibiotics sometime again in the future because it's, uh, it's a broad invention that has lots of little invention tributaries throughout history. Yeah, but it is such a fascinating case to look at and I think should make for a great episode of invention here because for starters, it's, it's a 20th century uh, invention slash discovery. Uh, often, of course, the line between invention and discovery is a little bit gray. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we can, yeah, we can pinpoint it to 1928 
and ultimately like rolled out by 1940 or so. Uh, but so we can we can look to it. We can look at the world before, and we can look at the world after with a, with a sort of clarity that we don't always have with uh, certainly uh, older or more ancient inventions. Exactly, because we always like to ask the question on the show: What came before the invention? Mm-hmm. What what changed when this invention came on the scene? Uh, and what came before widespread modern antibiotics was stupendous amounts of death and misery from infectious disease and blood poisoning. I, I was wondering, like, is it even possible to to get stats on what the world of infectious disease looked like before we had antibiotics around the mid-20th century? Yeah, I mean, to a certain extent, a lot of the suffering is just incalculable, um, you know, especially if you go back and sort of consider all of human history up to that point mm-hmm. and the various factors that that influenced uh, infectious disease and injury, uh, you know, the, the, the eventually the rise of germ theory, but also just things like the, the rise of cities mm-hmm. uh, and so forth. But, uh, but luckily, yeah, since it was such a, a recent invention, we have some pretty incredible stats on the matter. Um, you know, suddenly, thanks to this new miracle drug, diseases that had simply ravaged the global population, like syphilis, could be cured. Uh, the shadow of lethal infection no longer hung at least as heavily over every scrape, injury, and war wound. Mm-hmm. And with wounds, we're often talking about sepsis, uh, which is a term that was uh, used uh, by uh, Hippocrates back in the 4th century BCE, meaning blood rot or blood poisoning. Uh, and he was referring more generally, I think, to decay, but the term came to be applied to blood poisoning, which arises when the body's response to infection causes, in, causes injury to its own tissue and organs. Mm-hmm. But just prior to the 20th century, infectious diseases accounted for high morbidity and mortality rates around the world. Even in the industrialized world, according to W.A. Adeji in The Treasure Called Antibiotics from 2016, the average life expectancy at birth was 47 years, uh, 46 and 48 years for men and women, respectively. And this was due to the dangers of smallpox, uh, cholera, uh, diphtheria, pneumonia, typhoid fever, plague, tuberculosis, typhus, syphilis, and a host of other ailments that could afflict you. Mm -hmm. And then during the antibiotic era uh, that follow, again, come, you know, arising in the middle of the 20th century, the, the leading cause of death in the United States changed from communicable diseases to non-communicable diseases uh, like uh, cardio- cardiovascular disease, cancer, and stroke. And the average life expect- expectancy at birth rose to 78.8 years. Uh, so the elderly were no longer a mere 4% of the population but grow to become a whopping 13% of the population. So you know, we're talking about you know profound changes just to demographics based mm-hmm. on this new uh, this new invention. Yeah, the change is huge. I mean, we live in a world now where if you have access to high quality modern medicine, and a lot of people don't. I mean, mm-hmm. that's something to that's keep true. in mind. But if you have access to high quality modern science based medicine, and you can get antibiotics and uh, and can get to a hospital or, or see a doctor you very likely have a good chance to beat most of the common infectious diseases that that people get unless you have some kind of, you know, like another condition that exacerbates it or something. Before antibiotics, this was just not – people just died from 
diseases that you catch, like diseases that are common for people to catch all the time. Yeah, or you had certain uh, diseases like syphilis that were virtually uh, uncurable. Yeah, you know, and and some of the the, the cures that were attempted were were pretty horrendous, you mm-hmm. know, and and had uh, and, and generally did not work. You know, talking about like using mercury and so forth. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned before contamination of wounds. I mean, mm-hmm. this is just a huge thing. Just like you know, you might uh, you might cut yourself while gardening and you die from it. Yeah, and heaven forbid you undergo uh, say medieval uh, uh, gallstone surgery or something like that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, I, I think uh, tuberculosis has a, you know, is a good um, example to look at for some of these stats as well. According to the CDC, uh, TB was a leading cause of death in the U.S. in 1940 prior to the rollout of antibiotic therapy. In 1900, 194 of every 100,000 U.S. residents died from deep TB. Uh, most were residents of urban areas. Mm-hmm. In 1900, the three leading causes of death uh, in the U.S. were pneumonia, tuberculosis, and diarrhea and uh, enteritis, which together with diphtheria caused one-third of all deaths. And of these deaths, 40% were among children aged less than five years old. Now, to your point, not everybody has mo- the access to um, antibiotics that, uh, say, people enjoy in, uh, say, Europe and the United States. Um, yeah, TB remains a uh, the leading cause of death from an infectious disease in many parts of the world, particularly the developing world. And some antibiotic treatments or antibiotic-assisted treatments are more complicated and more difficult than others. I mean, I know the treatment for TB is not as, say, easy as the round of just orally administered antibiotics that you might get for a standard bacterial infection. Right. But it, it suddenly it was just a, you know, heralded, rightfully so, as a, as a miracle invention when it came about. Uh, you, I, I saw an image of a, of a sign on, I think, a garbage can or a mailbox mm-hmm. uh, from the mid-20th century uh, advertising that now you can get gonorrhea cured in, in uh, like four hours. <laughs> Thanks to the you know these new developments in antibiotics, uh, you know it's just a uh, it, it, it can be difficult to put ourselves in that mindset, having grown up in the wake of antibiotics, or at least most of us, most people listening to this show. I was just thinking about how many like U.S. presidents died of infections of various kinds. Oh yeah. Uh, that, that, that seems like that would be a very unusual thing to happen now. But like in the 1800s, James Garfield got shot, but it wasn't the initial gunshot that killed him. He lived for like I think weeks afterwards. Uh, he got an infection in the wound, I think, because mm-hmm. they were digging around with dirty hands to try to get the bullet out of him. And he and they didn't have antibiotics, of course, when he got an infection. So he died. I think another U.S. – was it William Henry Harrison who I think they think now died from – probably like drinking fecal contaminated water in the White House. Yeah, so many different um, uh, injuries and infections were just far more likely to be lethal with, uh, you know, without modern antibiotics to step in and, and aid in the fight. Now, there were some things that were kind of like versions of antibiotics or antimicrobials from before the discovery of penicillin in 1928. Yeah, the best example from the, the period just immediate, uh, immediately prior uh, to penicillin would be the sulfonamides or the sulfa drugs. And these were the, the first antibacterials to be used uh, systematically, and they were synthesized in 1932 uh, in the German laboratories of Bayer AG. 
Now, you might be thinking about the timeline, like, wait a minute, didn't we just say that penicillin was discovered in 28? But Mm -hmm. it took a long time after the discovery of penicillin's uh, antibacterial properties for it to be made as a useful medical drug. Right, like it was 1940. Generally, that's the the date you see for when penicillin actually became uh, an an actionable uh, thing in medicine. Uh, So, yeah, before that, we had uh, the the sulfa drugs. And they had a rocky start, but they did prove very effective in preventing wound infections during the Second World War. They were used on both sides in the, in the form of sulfa pills and also uh, sulfa powders that would be sprinkled over a wound. So if you've ever watched, uh, you know, uh, some sort of a period piece, so especially a war piece uh, from the 20th century, and you see somebody sprinkling powder mm-hmm. over an injury, that is what that's supposed to be, sulfa drugs. Uh, they're not as effective as true antibiotics like penicillin. Um, and there are a number of possible side effects that one, that uh, can take place. And it also can't be used to treat syphilis, uh, and, and it also can't treat uh, uh, sulfur-resistant infections. Now, of course, this is also a 20th century invention. So I was wondering, did anybody come up with any version of antibiotics or proto-antibiotics before the 20th century? We know that penicillin hadn't been discovered and, and uh, isolated and made stable as a useful medicine But were there any things like antibiotics or sort of precursors of antibiotics? Well, because in Game of Thrones, right, they have penicillin, don't they? Or they have some sort of fantasy version of penicillin? I've never heard of that. Don't they? They have something that the the old maesters would mention having to do with with bread and mold or something, didn't they? I don't remember that. I just remember people get cuts and then they get infected and die. Give him milk (laughs) of the poppy. I mean, they have milk of the poppy. Okay, well, maybe I'm imagining that. Our Game of Thrones, uh, our, our, our George R. R. Martin reader, will have to write in on that. But I vaguely remember there being like allusion to something like uh, some sort of mold-based medicine that they were using. Uh, I could be wrong on that. Well, I can see that being something that's thrown in there as a little aside, but that like isn't widely recognized or used maybe. Uh, And it's interesting how that kind of parallels some interesting pieces of evidence for proto-antibiotic technology in the real world, even going back to ancient times. So uh, I want to look at the work of the Emory University bioarchaeologist George J. Armelagos, who is now deceased. I think he died in 2014. Uh, But he's an interesting scholar, and he discovered something very curious back in 1980. So the subject he was looking at was a set of human bones from ancient Nubia dating from between 350 and 550 CE. And so the bones came from Nubia, which is a region of Africa along the Nile River but south of Egypt in what would be modern-day Sudan. And what these bones showed was evidence that the people they belonged to had been taking tetracycline. Hmm. Now, tetracycline is not the same as penicillin, but it is an antibiotic. It can be used to treat all kinds of infections from minor problems like acne, I think in concert with some other drugs, uh, to major diseases like plague or tularemia or even syphilis. And tetracycline works primarily by binding to the ribosomes of bacterial cells. Ribosomes are sort of the cellular factories. They build proteins that are needed in order for organisms to live and grow. And by binding to the ribosome, tetracycline makes it difficult for the bacterium to create new proteins. 
It was patented in the 1950s and became widely used in the second half of the 20th century. Uh, so what was it doing in the bones of Nubian people who lived like 1,700 years ago? Well, uh, Armelagos and colleagues followed archaeological clues to identify the source of the tetracycline, which was beer. Ah, of course, beer is another one of uh, – uh, ultimately, it, it falls under Zugdmoy's domain. Oh, yeah. Though this is different because tetracycline is not made from a fungus. It is actually – an antibacterial that is a byproduct of some bacteria. Oh, okay. So it's a bacterial byproduct, but essentially... Okay, so technically it's Jubilix. Okay. okay. <laughs> Score, uh, but point to Jubilix. This is Jubilix versus Jubilix, right? Oh, yeah. This well, is, I mean, that's going to happen with your demon lords. Intra-Jubilene warfare. Yeah. Uh, so beer is made from fermented grain, of course. And the fermented grain in this ancient Nubian beer apparently contained the bacteria Streptomyces, which creates tetracycline as a byproduct. But a question, of course. So, like, were these traces of tetracycline in Nubian mummy bones a sign of, like, a bad batch of beer that got contaminated by accident? Or were these people deliberately culturing their beer with antibiotic-producing bacteria? And so to look at a study from the American Journal of Physical Anthropology from 2010, of which uh, Armelagos was one of the authors, uh, the authors examine tetracycline in skeletal remains from throughout this period. And the evidence indicates that the ancient Nubians were consuming these antibiotics on a regular basis. And the authors suggest that these ancient people were intentionally producing this medicine. Hmm. And this links up with some evidence from uh, other ancient peoples nearby, such as the Egyptians, that sometimes apparently used beer as a treatment for conditions like gum disease and other types of infections. And the authors even found evidence of a four-year-old child whose skull contained lots of tetracycline from this beer, suggesting that the child had been fed high doses of, uh, of this, like, antibiotic beer, perhaps in an attempt to cure an illness, maybe the illness that killed him. And uh, so the levels of tetracycline residue found in the bones of these mummies is only explicable if they were repeatedly consuming this antibiotic in their diet. And there are actually other archaeological remains that show evidence of antibiotic use in the ancient world. For example, samples taken from the femora of skeletons from the Dakle Oasis in Egypt uh, from people who lived sometime in the late Roman period also showed evidence of the same thing, of tetracycline in the diet. And this consumption of tetracycline is consistent with other evidence showing a relatively low rate of infectious disease in Sudanese Nubia during that time period – uh, and a lack of bone infections apparent in these remains from the, this oasis in Egypt. So it really does look like people in ancient Africa discovered a somewhat effective form of antibiotics centuries before the discovery of penicillin and the isolation and mass production of focused antimicrobial medicines. Now, to be clear, I, I think like a, a beer that had tetracycline content from from being cultured with bacteria like this probably would not be as potent and focused and effective as like the isolated compounds in the drugs you'd take orally or through injection would be today. Right. But it would have some effect and it appeared that it probably was somewhat effective in fighting infectious disease. Right. And of course, they, they wouldn't know exactly what they had here, but they knew they had some sort of beer that seemed to uh – some sort of, of holy liquid that, that, that had some sort of curative property to it. Exactly. I mean, a, a fascinating discovery from the ancient world. Uh, another interesting fact, tetracycline is relatively unique in that it leaves clear signatures in the bones that can be discovered long after the person has died. So 
Other antibiotics don't leave these clear markers like this that make it easy for archaeologists to detect. So you have to wonder, like, are th were there other cases of ancient peoples in various places and times using some kind of antibiotics or bacterial or fungal cultures uh, to treat diseases like these ancient Nubian people were? Uh, but that we don't have evidence of because it doesn't show up in the bones like tetracycline does. Yeah, it could have just been uh, lost to history. Uh, I was reading an interesting paper from Frontiers in Microbiology in 2010 by uh, Rustam Aminov called A Brief History of the Antibiotic Era, Lessons Learned and Challenges for the Future. And Aminov points out this unique quality of tetracycline and notes just what I was basically just saying, like how easy it would be for evidence of other uses of antibiotics in the ancient world to be lost to us. Though he, he also mentions that there are other anecdotes from history about like cultural traditions that show proto-antibiotic technologies. And these other examples would include red soils found in Jordan that are used for treating skin infections. It's been discovered that these soils contain some antibiotic-producing organisms, though I'd guess there are probably also some major risks in applying soil to wounds. Uh, and then also plants used in traditional Chinese medicine that actually do have some antimicrobial properties. Yeah, because one thing we have to remember is like the modern uh, antibiotic effort is ultimately based in going out into the natural world and finding these weapons that yeah. already exist. Yeah. And then reusing them uh, and adapting them uh, for human medicine. And, you know, this is essentially what is going on in traditional medicines as well. And it also means that there are weapons out there that either have not been discovered at all, at all, especially in particularly vibrant ecosystems, some of which, of course, are threatened, all the more reason to, uh, for, for us to uh, not decimate, uh, say, the rainforests or the deep ocean. <laughs> right. Uh, but then there are also things that may have been discovered to some degree in the past but have been forgotten. Well, yeah, that, that does seem possible because despite all, all this evidence of ancient sort of proto-antibiotic technologies, the worldwide rates of death from infectious disease in the periods for which we have data right before the invention of modern antibiotics shows that humans generally did not have effective antimicrobials in that period. So maybe some of this knowledge was lost over time. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take our first break. But when we come back, uh, we're going to return to uh, the mold research of the 19th century and ultimately to our key inventor here, Alexander Fleming. All right, we're back. Now, we'll get to Alexander Fleming in a minute uh, with the discovery of penicillin, but Alexander Fleming was not the first person to notice that there might be some antimicrobial properties of certain fungi. That's right. There was there was work going on in this area uh, prior to Fleming. Fleming was, was uh, you know, picking up on, on some of it. And, uh, and really just overall, just our understanding of, of fungi uh, in general was, was advancing. As we mentioned in our psychedelics episodes, uh, you know, there was a time where we did not recognize fungi as being separate from the realm of plants right. uh, before we realized that it was a kingdom unto itself and ultimately a kingdom that has a little more in common with the, the animal kingdom than it does with the plant kingdom. And uh, there are a lot of talented folks uh, working in this area. But one of them it might come as a surprise to a lot of people. Um, and uh, that's because her name was Beatrix Potter. 
the, Wait, the, the bunny rabbit? The bunny rabbits, yes. Okay. You know, of the bunny rabbit uh, fame. <laughs> uh, I was, uh, it was kind of a curious coincidence because I was reading about all this mm-hmm. and then just randomly on the Stuff to Blow Your Mind discussion module, which is the Facebook group for people who listen to the show to discuss episodes, someone brought up Beatrix Potter in uh, regards to something to do with squirrels because there's a lot of squirrel uh, squirrel content in the discussion module. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, they brought up Beatrix Potter and Beatrix Potter actually ties in to this episode a little bit uh, because in addition to being the author and illustrator of the, you know, the tale of Peter Rabbit and associated British animal tales, she was also a naturalist uh, with a great deal of interest in astronomy and most importantly of all, mycology. So she produced a lot of just beautiful scientific watercolor illustrations of various fungi uh, in her, you know, neck of the British woods um, and, and, you know, as part of her studies. And she studied a lot of uh, local molds as well and did illustrations of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she's, a, she's, she's a, ultimately a very interesting character that was, um, you know, unfortunately she lived in a time in which, um, you know, the sexism of the day prevented her from, I think, reaching the heights of uh, in the natural sciences that she would have been afforded uh, later on. Mm-hmm. But uh, – and then a lot of her work is also just being – I think rediscovered and appreciated for the first time, uh, you know, in recent decades. But uh, but yeah, the next time someone busts out some uh, Beatrix Potter, uh, remember this is not just a uh, an individual who uh, wrote some fanciful tales and illustrated them. Like she was also just she was out there studying the natural world and uh, and creating in, in, in advancing our understanding of mycology. She was sort of uh, looking into the hidden life of nature in multiple ways. Yeah. And, you know, and I see some sources out there that are like asking the question, okay, was Beatrix Potter, was she a true naturalist, a true natural scientist, or was she just a, uh, you know, a, a, an amateur that was just very interested in these things? And I don't know, it's kind of a complicated question to ask when you consider like the limitations uh, in the Victorian era for women. Uh, but I, I think undoubtedly she she I, I would side with the fact that she was a natural scientist. Uh, I mean, she authored or co-authored one paper, if I remember correctly. So uh, I'm I'm going to give her give her full credit. Was it about a uh, fungi? Uh, it was. Well, it was a it was a mushroom in particular. Uh-huh. Um, I forget. It was one of those related to the Russulo mushrooms, but I forget which species. Huh. But uh, but yeah, basically she was you know she was kind of up up against the. Uh, the patriarchy uh, for the most part, though. Yeah. Well, is it time to turn to penicillin itself? Yes, let's turn to this, the key discovery here and our inventor, our discoverer, Alexander Fleming. Okay, so who was Alexander Fleming? Okay, so uh, Fleming was born in 1881, died in 1955, and he was a Scottish biologist, physician, microbiologist, and pharmacologist. He was the son of a farmer. And he observed and studied a great deal of death from sepsis in World War I. Mm-hmm. He observed that while um, uh, antiseptics worked well at the surface, uh, deeper wounds sheltered bacteria from the effects of things like sulfa drugs. Right. So if you have a kind of superficial wound, you could clean it off pretty good mm-hmm. and that might help protect you from uh, from bacterial infection. But if you have a deep wound and say like dirty stuff, bits of soil and other, you know, just crud gets lodged deep in there, you might not be able to clean the wound out very well. Right. And that's exactly the kind of stuff that's going to get lodged in there, especially with your war wounds where there is a, you know, a stab or a... Uh, you know, or a, or a deep cut or a bullet uh, entering the body. Well, it makes me think about uh, the, when we were reading about the idea of Stegosaurus perhaps weaponized, I mean, not consciously, but the mm-hmm. Stegosaurus perhaps uh, 
having an adaptation to weaponize infection against its enemies. Oh, by dragging uh, its uh, thagomizer spikes through the dung. Right, the dirt. exactly. Yeah, having dirty thagomizer spikes. And then when it whacks the T Rex in the crotch with them, that, uh, that gets infected later and eliminates a predator from the area. Yeah, and uh, the, 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 the predators of the day would not have had access to antibiotics. Certainly not. Or even that beer from, uh, that we mentioned earlier. So uh, Fl- Fleming was, you know, devoted himself to research. And he, uh, prior to penicillin, he discovered uh, lysozyme, a naturally occurring enzyme in mucus and other parts of the body that inhibits bacteria. Mm-hmm. So you know, he was already you know, in this, this area you know, looking for, for new, um, new breakthroughs, new discoveries. Uh, but then his biggest breakthrough of all is this discovery of penicillin. And it's truly one of the more amazing invention slash discovery moments from history. Mm-hmm. Because while he was exactly the right person to make the discovery and, just, and deserves all the credit he was given, the key moment comes down really to pure luck. And we simply don't know if anyone else would have made the discovery if he had not been there to observe it. Okay, so what happened with this discovery? So uh, around like 1927 or so, he had engaged himself in studying um, staphylococci or, you know, staph. Mm -hmm. And he had stacks of Petri dishes, dish specimens in his lab, which I've seen described as being kind of an untidy lab. Uh So, you know, imagining all these like like Petri dishes full of staph uh, all over the place, notes and so forth. And so the key moment comes in September of 1928, right? Right. So he has has these staff Petri dishes out, and then he leaves them for the weekend to go on holiday with his family. And when he comes back, he expects to just see how they've progressed, see Uh how they've grown. Uh, But he finds that they haven't grown. In fact, they have died. Something has ravaged his specimens. Yeah. Now, it's – this is one of those stories where it gets very narrativized. So you do have to wonder if some details of it are embellished Mm -hmm. or how how the story may have changed over time. But this is the way the story has been passed down and and I think it seems to be largely basically true. Uh, The way that I've seen the story often told is that – he comes in, there's a blob of mold growing in one of the plates and all around the mold there's this halo of nothingness where, you know, normally what you would see is that if you've got a plate for culturing bacteria, there would be these little dots and blobs on the, on mm-hmm. the plate. Uh, but instead there's this halo where there's no bacteria, bacterial dead zone. Now, of course – we know Staphylococcus is is a bacterium group linked to all kinds of human disease and misery. I think staph infections, right? If this mold could kill staph, that seems medically relevant. So what happened here? Well, um, he, he, he realized that he was dealing with some sort of a fungi. Uh-huh. You know, so he uh, – luckily there was a mycologist with a lab just below Fleming on the floor below his lab, uh-huh. uh, a man by the name of C.J. La Touche. And in fact, it's also been suspected that the mold in question that killed um, Fleming's uh, staff might have drifted up from Latouche's lab, adding an extra element of weird chance to this whole situation. Okay, so perhaps his samples were contaminated by stuff from the lab next door or down a floor. Right. That's, yeah. that's, one, that's, not, that's not a theory that's presented in every source, but right. it does pop up fairly frequently. So specifically, this mold was what would later be identified as a strain of Penicillium notatum. And it was obvious that it secreted something that prevented staph bacteria from growing. 
And so Fleming followed up in studying this secretion, this, this mold juice, as I've seen it called. Uh, he, he found that it didn't only prevent the growth of Staphylococcus. It worked against common bacteria like Streptococcus or Meningococcus and, uh, and the also against the bacterium that causes diphtheria. Interestingly, while Fleming did see applications for penicillin in curing disease, and he mentioned them briefly in the paper he published in 1929 about this discovery about uh, the, the antibacterial properties of penicillium, uh, he primarily thought of this secretion of penicillium as a tool for bacteriologists to sort strains of bacteria basically into penicillin-sensitive versus non-penicillin-sensitive species and that, that that could be useful in the lab. Yeah, so he's sometimes criticized as, as really not understanding completely what he had here, mm -hmm. not having the vision to see where it could go. Well, I don't think he completely understood, but he, he did indicate that this could possibly have uses in medicine. Right. Um, so Fleming and his assistants, Stuart Craddock and Frederick uh, Ridley, tried for years to turn this accidental discovery into a stable, isolated compound that would be useful. And this is this was a problem because like – so you've got this secretion from the mold. It, the mold's making some juice. It's kind of getting stuff wet with this this stuff that, that, uh, that fights bacterial growth. But they couldn't isolate the compound that was causing the effect and stabilize it and make it, make it generally useful. Uh, so to quote from Aminov's paper, Aminov that I mentioned earlier, quote, for 12 years after his initial observation, Alexander Fleming was trying to get chemists interested in resolving persisting problems with the purification and stability of the active substance and supplied the penicillium strain to anyone requesting it. But he really he, – he could never crack the nut ultimately and he didn't finally make this discovery of the process for, uh, for uh, stabilizing and isolating the compound. And by 1940, Aminov writes that uh, Fleming finally abandoned his quest. But fortunately, it was right about that time that a capable team at Oxford University, including the researchers Howard Florey and Ernst Chain or Chine, they uh, picked up on this research and they, they kicked off the research project that would eventually break through on this. Uh, and th there are all these interesting stories. So, of course, this is while World War II is going on. Right. So research conditions are not ideal. And uh, th there are all these stories about how they turned their lab at Oxford into this giant incubation center or sort of factory for mold. Like they employed all these lab assistants who were these women who had been referred to in some sources as the penicillin girls. <laughs> And they would work to like to, they would work to grow the penicillin in buckets and tubs and basically every container that they could, um, and uh, eventually they did they were able to isolate and stabilize this compound. So to quote from an article uh, from the American Chemical Society, quote: In 1940, Flory, and that would be Howard Flory carried out vital experiments showing that penicillin could protect mice against infection from deadly streptococci. Then, on February 12, 1941, a 43-year-old policeman, Albert Alexander, became the first recipient of the Oxford penicillin. He'd scratched the side of his mouth while pruning roses and had developed a life-threatening infection with huge abscesses affecting his eyes, face, and lungs. Penicillin was injected, and within days, he made a remarkable recovery. Wow. But unfortunately, despite this recovery, which lasted for a few days, they ran out of the drug, and Alexander eventually got worse again, and he died. 
and I was reading that they were so desperate to cure him that after Alexander urinated while on his antibiotic course, they would collect the urine and try to extract the penicillin he excreted again so that it could be re-administered to him. Uh, and I should mention also that the, the process that the Oxford team relied on to extract and purify the penicillin in the mold juice was led by another uh, important biochemist, a guy named Norman Heatley. But this case of Albert Alexander shows an obvious early problem they had which was the problem of scale. They simply lacked the ability to make penicillin at the scale it, that would be needed to treat even one person, let alone the whole world. Uh, the strain of mold that they were using didn't make enough of it. And this led to the search for other species of the same fungal genus, penicillium, which would maybe, they thought, produce higher concentrations of the penicillin filtrate. And I was reading an interesting article by the University of Michigan physician and medical historian Howard Markle that tells a really interesting story. I'd never heard about this. Uh, so the story goes like this. Apparently, one of the assistants at the Oxford lab showed up for work one day in 1941 with a cantaloupe that she'd bought at the market because it was covered in a weird-looking golden mold, which is great because this would be the one case where somebody is picking over the fresh produ produce to, like, find the moldy one. Uh, but the mold on this cantaloupe turned out to be a strain of penicillium called penicillium chrysogeum, which Markle says naturally produced at least about 200 times as much penicillin as the original strain that they'd been studying. And uh, then later, Markle writes that this same strain was subjected to mutagenic processes in the lab, so like bombarding it with x-rays and stuff, to produce uh, a mutated strain that would make up to a thousand times as much penicillin as the old-school Fleming mold. So by 1941, penicillin is on its way to becoming a viable medicine. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to look at the impact uh, of penicillin. And we're going to look at it uh, in, a, in, I think, a fun way by uh, considering a really interesting what if. All right. We're back. So uh, we often don't don't do a lot of what ifs on invention. Uh, we don't. I thought we we kind of do to a certain extent, but I mean, a lot of times it's a harder case to be made for like what if this had not been invention invented, right, right? or discovered? Because in most cases, you can uh, you can you can look at the the data. You can look at other individuals' work. Like if the Wright brothers had not invented the airplane, mm -hmm. uh, had not you know created that uh, that first prototype that really showed what was possible. Uh, like clearly there were there were other individuals in the world working on this. Someone yeah. would have cracked it. If if Röntgen had not discovered X rays in you know eighteen ninety wh whatever year it was, somebody mm -hmm. else would have discovered them pretty soon. Right. But uh, when it comes to penicillin, uh, it potentially gets a little more complicated. Than that, uh, I ran across a, a cool article on the topic titled "What If Fleming Had Not Discovered Penicillin," and this was uh, published in uh, the Saudi Journal um, of uh, Biological Sciences by uh, Al Harbi et al. The authors admit that, that certainly if Fleming hadn't made the discovery, someone else might have in the years to follow, probably, you know, in the early 1940s, they, they estimate. So we could still well have, have arrived in the antibacterial age. However, they also explore the possibility that we might have simply not made the discovery at all. Wow. And it's an interesting argument. So I want to I read a quote from the paper here. 
Quote, of course penicillin could have been discovered the day after Fleming missed the opportunity, but in reality, there was no parallel discovery that took place. As a result, anyone taking an interest in penicillin during the 1930s did so in the knowledge of Fleming's work. In particular, there seems no reason to believe that Flory and Chain would have discovered penicillin since their work depended on Fleming's famous paper and their access to one of his penicillin-producing cultures. Okay, so that's referring to the thing I mentioned about how uh, how uh, uh, Fleming and his assistants were just like sharing the penicillium strain out with everybody. Right. Like, hey, can you figure out what's going on with this? Can you isolate the secretion or the compound in the secretion? Yeah. So, so think about that. There was there was so far as these researchers could determine, you know, no other effort out there that would have uh, you know struck Pater in the absence of Fleming's research. The Oxford group wouldn't have been looking for it. Selman Waxman, the father of modern antibiotics, as he's sometimes called, uh, who made several. Uh, key discoveries later was also inspired by Fleming. Mm -hmm. So it's, yeah, it's one of these cases where like he seems to be the epicenter. Uh, well, not, not only him, but just the, 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 the seemingly chance encounter uh, in his lab that day uh, that, that uh, where suddenly this halo appears mm -hmm. in the Petri dish. And that gives birth to a, to a whole class of other discoveries, right? Because not all uh, antibiotics are derived from penicillin. The penicillin class of antibiotics becomes sort of like one sort of grandfather class, but then there are all these other classes that are discovered during this golden age of antibiotics that takes place over the next few decades. Yeah, and there are various uh, just additional medical uh, breakthroughs that would not have occurred without penicillin, such as organ transplant. Mm -hmm. Uh, but then there's also the question like what would have what would have happened in the the wider world? Because again, penicillin comes online during the Second World War. And uh, so you, you can easily ask, well, what would have happened if allied troops had not benefited from access to antibiotics at D-Day? I've never thought about that. And, In fact, I, I, before looking at this episode, I probably would not have known the answer to whether or not they had access to antibiotics. Well, uh, penicillin production was actually swiftly scaled up uh, just to make sure that allied soldiers uh, had access to it at D-Day. Wow. Um, so there's a legitimate question to be asked. Might the Allies not have won the Second World War without penicillin? Huh. Um, I, I think there are a lot of factors to consider there. I don't think that right. this, it's, it's quite a gotcha question, but it's, it's worth thinking about. The authors uh, argue that without Fleming's discovery, we would have had to depend on the sulfa drugs, uh, you know, an imperfect alternative to uh, true antibiotics. And these, uh, you know, these were described in the 1930s and Fleming worked with them prior to his discovery. Uh, but without penicillin uh, in play, the authors argue that sulfa drugs might have become the standard and even pushed the discovery of true um, antibiotics well beyond the 1960s. And uh, this is uh, also true of the Axis powers had risen in victorious in World War II because the, the Axis powers depended on sulfa drugs as mm -hmm. their, their key treatment. Um, you know, they do po point out that, you know, uh, quote, despite the fact that the Germans and their allies were at a considerable disadvantage, uh, the sulfur drugs did a relatively good job at reducing battle casualties. So not to just completely, um, you know, cast aside the effectiveness of sulfur drugs, but still they were not as effective as true antibiotics. It's weird to think about the political implications of specific medical technologies. Yeah. And then when you get down to the curious cases of individuals, yeah. it also gets interesting. We already touched on presidents who died 
that would have lived potentially if there had been penicillin around. Right. Uh, and so they point out that um, uh, that sulfa drugs saved Churchill's life in 1943 uh, when he was suffering from pneumonia, uh, as well as FDR's life. Uh-huh. Uh, but there's also evidence, by the way, uh, that actual penicillin may have saved Hitler's life following the Stauffenberg assassination attempt of July 20th, 1944. Uh. This was the plot that tried to kill Hitler with a briefcase bomb. Right. Like where yeah. uh, the, some of the officers conspired against him and they put a briefcase bomb in the room with him and it did explode, but he was protected by like a heavy table that prevented it from killing him. He was obviously injured and I think he had like nerve damage after right. that. So you, the idea here is that perhaps his injuries were treated by by penicillin? Yeah, that's at least an argument that's been made that they had access to penicillin. Uh, uh. I'm unclear on how they would have obtained it. You know, I'm sure maybe there's a spy story there. I don't know. Uh, but uh. The, the idea being, well, if he had, if he had, didn't have access to penicillin, then perhaps he would have died and that would have arguably ended the war, you know, in a different manner, forcing us to reimagine an entirely different post-war world. Mm. So again, we're playing with with what ifs here, and and also we. My understanding is we don't know for sure that Hitler had a, access to penicillin following right. that assassination attempt, but there is the overall scenario of the Allies having penicillin and having this ramped up penicillin production leading into D Day. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I'd never contemplated that before. Um, now, something that I, we do often have to think about, and we should probably acknowledge at the end here before we move on, maybe this will be something to come back and mm-hmm. uh, do in the future with a recent invention episode, is the idea of uh, a possible end of the antibiotics age. I mean, this is a kind of scary thing to imagine, like – what if the antibiotics age is essentially a period in history that has a beginning and an end? Because as we you've, – you've probably heard about this, many disease-causing bacteria and other disease-causing microbes are over time evolving uh, antibiotic resistance, are evolving to – to be powerful enough to survive our antimicrobial drugs. And I think specifically one thing that's exacerbating this is overuse of antibiotics and people not taking the entire course of antibiotics when they're given them. Yeah, because again, to come back to the Zagdemoy Jubilix war Mm -hmm. scenario, you know, it is an ongoing uh, battle and the the forces evolve uh, to to, to better deal with the, the threats on each side. Yeah. And so... Uh, you know, we're 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 seeing this occur. We're seeing the, the overuse of antibiotics producing, uh, you know, strains that are uh, that are resistant, and uh, it's reversing some of the therapeutic miracles of the last fifty years, and and underscores the importance of disease prevention uh, in addition to treatment. And that means not not abandoning some of our other vital tools for human health, like vaccination. Oh yeah, we should come back and revisit vaccinations, oh, yes. or, or maybe even various different vaccinations in the future. Yeah. Uh, another thing to keep in mind that uh, I don't think we mentioned earlier was that the 1940s through the 1970s uh, are, are considered like the golden age of antibiotic research. Yeah. And we haven't seen, at least we haven't seen any new classes of antibiotics emerge since that time period. Right. Now, there have been new developments in antibiotics, but I think the way I've read it is that they're generally modifications right. on existing classes of antibiotics. Yeah. It's sort of like we... 
We haven't we haven't found anything radically new since then. Basically, we reached out into the natural war between uh, between fungi and the microbial legions, and we we stole some of the tools. We stole some of that Promethean fire. Uh-huh. We we, ad- we keep adapting that fire to our own purposes, but we haven't we haven't found any new weapon from that world, and uh, and then their ongoing war continues uh, to change. I'd be interested, uh, do you out there, you the listener, do you work in medical research? Are you working on areas involved in antibiotic resistance, the future of antimicrobials? Uh, I Please get in touch with us. I would like to hear about that. What, what are you doing in your work and what does the future look like to you on the inside? Absolutely. We would, uh, we would love to hear from you. Uh, again, we've only really scratched the surface here, though thanks to antibiotics, hopefully that scratch will not uh, Get <laughs> result infected, in yeah. a life-threatening <laughs> infection. Uh, but yeah, there, there's a lot more history here. But, but hopefully what we've done here today is, of course, highlight just a very, very cool story from the history of inventions and discoveries in human history and outlined the impact of of one of the greatest uh, inventions or discoveries, again, however you want to cl- uh, classify it, uh, from the 20th century. Yeah, totally. In the meantime, if you want to check out other episodes of Invention, you can check out our homepage. It's uh, inventionpod.com, and that'll have all the episodes right there. If you want to support the show, and we would appreciate it if, if you did support the show, there are a few simple things you can do. Tell friends about it. You know, tell, tell your family members about Invention. And then if you have the ability to do so, rate and review us wherever you got this podcast. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Maya Cole. If you'd like to get in touch with us to let us know feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.